0: 1949, a young Cambodian man won a scholarship to study in Paris. His name was Pol Pot. He went to the French School of Electronics and studied for four years, but he failed his exams for three years running because studying radio electronics wasn't his his real focus. His real interest was politics. And the ideas that he absorbed were exciting, revolutionary, anti-colonial, and committed to armed struggle. He returned to Cambodia and he threw himself into political action. He rose to power in a revolutionary movement called the Khmer Rouge. And in 1975, they seized control of the capital city of Cambodia, Phnom Penh. Now, within days of them gaining power, the city's entire population of two million people was marched out into the countryside at gunpoint. Pol Pot declared that it was year zero, so he started the Calendar again, and he directed a ruthless program to purify Cambodian society of all capitalism, Western culture, religion, and any foreign influences. His vision was of an isolated, totally self sufficient state. It was a vision of a perfect society free from foreign control and influence. Resistance was futile. All foreigners were kicked out, embassies closed, and the the currency was abolished. So they went from year, year zero and no money as well. Schools, newspapers, religion and private property were outlawed. And members of the government, public servants, police, teachers, religious leaders, middle class people and the educated were identified and executed. Towns and cities were emptied. The entire population was driven out to agricultural collectives, which became known as the killing fields. Families were torn apart, children encouraged to spy on their parents. An estimated one and a half million Cambodians were worked or starved to death. They died of disease and exposure, or they were executed for infringements of camp discipline, including slacking, complaining, wearing jewellery, expressing religious sentiments or grieving. How should we assess Pol Pot's perfect society? Within four years, about a quarter of the population had died. On a per capita basis, Pol Pot's revolution was probably the deadliest in modern history. Towards the end of his life, Pol Pot was asked for his assessment. And he replied, for the love of the nation and the people, it was the right thing to do. But in the course of our actions, we made some mistakes. Cambodia, a very complex picture of tears and oppression, injustice and suffering, all brought about by those who got power. Yet at least at the start, they had a vision to try and make the world a better place. How often things like this happen in history. Abuse of power, the the, uh, depriving people of justice, economic injustice. It can lead us, can't it, to be just very cynical about... Solutions about people in power, about politics. Or it can lead us to a kind of opposite reaction, sentimentality. We just try not to think about it and believe the world would be a better place. But that won't work either. A third reaction is kind of denial. Try and escape. Yet even when we focus on the simple things in life and the world, cruelty and oppression has a way of leaking in, doesn't it? Annie Dillard wrote a very famous novel called Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. She decided she was going to get away from it all and go and live in a little log cabin in West Virginia and just get back in touch with nature. Doesn't that sound idyllic? Being in touch with nature there in the sunshine somewhere in West Virginia. Live off the land. But what she discovered and talks about in her book is that uh, nature loves death. Evolutionary processes are all built on death. She talks about a, a creature, a water bug, latching onto a frog and slowly sucking its insides out. <laughs> so, what are we supposed to do with all this? Now, the book of Ecclesiastes was written more than two, two and a half thousand years ago to face exactly these sorts of questions. In this passage that Jess just read, we we read some of the bleakest statements in the Bible, some of the rawest and darkest statements. Who would have thought that this was in the Bible? Chapter 3, verse 19. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so so all dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. What about chapter 4, verse 3? Better, it's, you know, you're better off dead than alive, but better than both is the one who's never even been born. Who's never seen the evil that is done under the sun. Whoever would have thought that was in the Bible? So you see, this book, Ecclesiastes, is not going to give us a neat religious answer that's all sort of tidy and done up with a bow. He's facing reality. He's asking the hard questions that you and I ask, and he's finding that they're hard. But he won't just leave us there. He gives us God's perspective on the real issues. And he points us to a better way of life. So I'm trying to take this very difficult, complicated passage here and just present it with two headings that I think capture what he's doing. The two headings are the two main things we need to see. The way of the world and the way of the Lord. The way of the world and the way of the Lord. Firstly, the way of the world. He's taking a good hard look at life as it really is. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 16. And I saw something else under the sun. Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. Now, this phrase, under the sun, is quite important for us to understand the book because it occurs many times. And what he means by it is that under the sun is life in this world without God. Subtract God from the equation. And what are you left with? What if we take this perspective that all there is, is what's underneath the heavens? Imagine there's no heaven above, John Lennon sang. Can we squeeze ultimate meaning? Can we squeeze satisfaction out of this world without the creator? And what does he see under the sun? Chapter 3, verse 16, he sees injustice. Here it is. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. He's talking about the law courts, the legal system. The one place you want to go and things will be fair and just. And you will get justice. You bring your case, you've been wronged for some reason. That's where you're going to go. And he says, I looked at the law courts and I saw, even there, evil was present. People were deprived of justice. Now, those of you who've grown up in the the British Isles, we've, we've lived for many centuries under the rule of law. We're very fortunate. By and large, we have a good legal system. But you know well that even in this country, justice isn't always served, is it? Shakespeare wrote many years ago about the law's delay. Sometimes the law takes so long to reach a conclusion that it becomes an unjust situation of suffering. We all know times where people have paid a lawyer and managed to get off. Or somebody who had a legitimate case wasn't able to make it. The law sometimes is an ass, And that's in a country where we've got one of the best legal systems. What about those parts of the world where the, the justice system is corrupt? Where it's controlled by the powerful who work for bribes? There are many, many parts of the world. The majority of the world, through most of human history, has been an unjust place. And that's what he sees. Even in the place of justice, wickedness was there. Secondly, he sees oppression. This is like a step further on. Chapter 4, verse 1, he looks and he says, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. What a miserable situation that depicts. Here are the oppressed, the poor the orphan, the migrant, the person with nothing, the person who's very sick, the person whose life has fallen apart. And he sees them, and he sees them being oppressed by people who are taking advantage of them. Jess just prayed about human trafficking. Slavery is a very real thing in our world and even in our city. People are being brought into to the UK to work as slaves, and they've got no way out. Oppression. And power is on the side of their oppressors. What misery it depicts! And so he looks at all this. And he just says, verse 2 and 3, I declare that the dead, who had already died, are happier than the living. But better than both is the one who's never been born, who has not seen the evil that's done under the sun. Is that a bit over the top? Let me read something. This is not pleasant, but I think we need to read this. From David Gibson's excellent book on Ecclesiastes. He says, in these verses, the preacher describes how it feels to watch a news report about Baby P instead of changing the channel. Baby P was referred to, his boy called Peter Connolly was referred to as Baby P during the trial of his parents. He was a 17 month old boy in London who died after suffering over 50 injuries during an eight month period. During that time, he was repeatedly seen by healthcare professionals who failed to notice the harm he was enduring. He was left in a home of unspeakable abuse and trauma by people who had the power to rescue him. A paramedic was called to assist a man who had fallen at home. In a filthy living room with a foul stench, he and his colleague discovered a 60-year-old man who had been left by his son to lie in the same spot for two weeks. When they tried to move him, his skin came away from his clothes and body. He had to be wrapped in burn dressings after lying in his own urine for so long. In Birmingham, a toddler called Christiana Logina died of septic shock after her mother held her under a scalding shower to punish her. She lived with her injuries for two weeks and eventually died because her parents had refused to seek medical help for her wounds. That's miserable, isn't it? There's just three stories. That is miserable. You can understand, can't you, why he says, you know, it would have been better not to have be been born to see that kind of misery. That is the world we live in. That's the way the world is. Injustice and oppression. Now, really strangely, Ecclesiastes then turns to talk about work. Seems a bit of a side kind of sidewind. Chapter 4, verse 4, he seems to change the subject. He says, I saw all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the win. Is that a little bit extreme? How much of our achievement and our desire to, to achieve is driven by wanting to win and beat somebody else? How much of what happens in the workplace? Just think about it. If you're in a, if you're in a workplace... How much of people's conduct is driven by envy of somebody else? If you, if you run a household, if that's what you do most of the time, how much of what people who run their own home do is driven by envy of wanting to be a better mum than someone over there or have a nicer house? So much of our life is built on envy. American novelist Gore Vidal once said, Every time a friend succeeds, something inside me dies a little. And Ecclesiastes is saying, you know what? Actually, a lot of achievement is just driven by envy. Now there are two possible responses to that chill out or burnout. Chill out or burn out, and both of them are bad responses. Look at v- verse five. A fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Now the fool here is somebody who says, I'm not getting involved in the rat race. Not for me. I'm going to chill out. I'm a surfer dude nothing against surfing by the way just came into my mind you say it's the kind of person who thinks i'm, I'm done with that i'm not i'm not i'm not i'm not going to uh, wear myself out working i'm just going to relax fold my hands chill see what happens and he says you know what the problem with that is it leads to self destruction the hebrew language literally says they eat their own flesh <laughs> which is a very vivid image of somebody who's, who's, who's impoverished themselves and has nothing else to eat except themselves. They destroy themselves. You may know people like this. They've decided to check out from responsibility, to check out from life, just to please themselves, and they've ended up eroded. What they were is, is diminished. They've become a ruined shadow of what they were formerly like. Now, the opposite end of the spectrum to that the opposite swing of the pendulum is the person who's going to burn out chapter 4 verse 6 two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind this is an image of somebody who is a high achiever driven competitive ambitious wants to make it all the way to the top But what is the personal cost they pay to get the two handfuls to grab everything they can? It says here that they surrender contentment, they lose peace of mind, they capitulate, they give in to envy, and though on the surface they look successful, inside they're eaten away. Proverbs chapter 14 verse 30 says this, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. See, the person who's just involved in chilling out, or the person who is devoted to burning out, at the end of the day, interestingly, are very similar. Because for both of them, it's all about them. It's all about them. Trying to please themselves, and both of them end up destroyed by it. So we've thought about injustice, oppression and the misery in the world. We've thought about toil and achievement and different responses to that. What is the thread that holds all of this together? It's when people live as if it's all about me. That's what the the person inflicting oppression and injustice is doing, isn't it? Living as if it's all about me and you are here to serve me. The person who's clambering up the career ladder is doing it by treading on the head of somebody further down person who's living as if it's all about me. Now this is where I think we have to start feeling a little bit uncomfortable, don't we? Do we live as if it's all about me? I think we'd be amazed to know how much of our thoughts today have been taken up with this one little word, me. How much of our thoughts and our decisions are taken up with trying to make life work for me, to navigate the world so that it serves me to relate to other people to the extent that it pleases and satisfies and fulfills my goals. And what he's saying here is this is the way of the world. People live as if it's all about them. This is what happens when people think they are the most important person in the universe. This is the outcome. It leads to injustice in personal relationships and in society. It leads to oppression, people being Leaned on and overborne by others, it leads to misery, it leads to envy, it leads to crushing, and ultimately to self destruction. That's the way of the world. I told you it was going to be bleak today. But there is a better way. According to the Bible, it's a way out, and it's called the way of the Lord. Christianity, actually, interestingly, in the early days in the book of Acts, before it was called Christianity, was called the way. Before they were called Christians, they were called followers of the way. You see, the Bible is written not to satisfy our curiosity, although it has lots of information in it. It's not primarily written to satisfy our curiosity, but to shape our lives. Christianity is a set of truths. We call them doctrines. But it is more than that. It is a way of life. A way of life. And how how do we know what that way is? There are three things we learn from this passage. Firstly, God is God. God is God, chapter 3, verse 17. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity and time to judge every deed. This is an absolute statement about who ultimately is really in charge, and it's not us. The Bible teaches that God is a holy being he's a he's a he's a a person of love but he's ultimately totally holy and he will judge the world with justice god will not overlook anything it says in, in the new testament that he's appointed a day when he will judge the earth through jesus christ so every deed will be brought into the light and will be assessed fairly by the one who is impartial god will judge not us in fact the new testament says this is how you can uh, afford to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you and not take revenge because you know that revenge belongs to god vengeance is mine says the lord i will repay god is god he will judge all things in his own time and of course we then say well why not now lord how long especially those who are suffering ask this question how long o lord and the bible's answer is a little bit bracing. Are you ready for it? Who are you? The Bible's answer to our question, why isn't God sorting out the problems of the world now, is who do you think you are? See, according to the Bible, the problem of suffering, which we make a, lot, a great deal of in Western society, the problem that, well, if there's suffering in the world, surely there can't be a God, is a massive problem to us because we think we're godlike. We think we have all the answers. We should have to have a complete picture of everything and be able to understand. The Bible's answer is you're just a human. You're just a creature. God is God. And secondly, you are not God. Look at chapter 3, verse 19 to 21 again. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals, everything is meaningless, all go to the same place, all come from dust, and to dust all return. See on one level we're just, we're very similar, we're just really the same as as the animals because we're creatures. Which kind of makes our attempts to be godlike and make ourselves the centre of the universe look all the more ridiculous, doesn't it? I mean, I've had calls to mention in this series already that no matter how important you are, if you're the CEO of a global company or you're the person doing the photocopying, we all end up in the same hole in the ground. And here we discover animals go in the hole as well. So you might be asking, will my dog go to heaven? I don't know, but he will be in the grave with you. Now, of course, the Bible elsewhere teaches a lot more than this about humanity. It says we're made in God's image. We're given a special dignity and purpose in the world. We're given a life that's sacred. The human beings are special creations. That their life is is sacred. But the point here is that we do all die. We're mortal. And here he says that death is a test. God tests us through it by exposing us to the reality that we're limited. We're finite. We're mortal. We're all going to die. And this test should teach us some humility, shouldn't it? should teach us some humility. How could it possibly all be all about me when I'm just here for three score years and ten? God is God, and there is no other. He does as he pleases. You're not God. In some ways, you're just like the animals. And therefore, we should live as God intended. We should live as God intended. See, there's a third way to chilling out and burning out. And this way uh, it's described for us in chapter 4, verse 6. I beg your pardon. Yes, chapter 4, verse 6. Better to have one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. One handful with tranquility. What's he saying? It's better to be satisfied with what you've got in life One handful. Then trying to grab the world. But to have tranquility with it. Don't you want to enjoy tranquility? Rest. Peace of mind. the good life. Peace in relationships with other people. The truly happy life. It turns out here that the truly happy life is actually lived for other people. Not for ourselves. It's when we stop thinking it's all about me. And start thinking, it's all about we. How are we doing is a much better question to shape your life around than how am I doing. God is God. You're not God, so let's live as God intended. Okay, you say, but how do we do that? How do we do that? Is this just a question of try harder? Give more money to charity. Help animals and old ladies no the bible makes it very clear that just trying harder can get us into a worse mess by nature we do all live as if it's all about me, it's hardwired into us, we're ultimately self centred creatures so how can we change how can we escape this rat race, this way of life injustice and oppression and misery how can we live in such a way that we serve other people gladly and we see our life as investing in them as a good thing The answer that the whole Bible gives is through a message called the Gospel. The Gospel, it means good, great news. And in this message of the Gospel, we learn that God took pity on us because we were far from him and we were miserable. And God sent Jesus Christ into the world as one of us. Jesus became a human being, fully human and yet fully God. And he lived a perfect life, the life of self-sacrifice and self-service. He said... He came to serve, not to be served. And Jesus' ultimate act of service was to lay down his life on a Roman cross, a cruel instrument of torture. He predicted that he was going to do it. He he told his followers that this was deliberate. He had come to die on a cross to take away the sins of the world. And Jesus, on the third day after he'd been crucified, rose from the dead, In in his in in a physically glorified but real body, and he went to heaven. And so the message of the Bible is: if you trust Jesus Christ, you can be saved from your own sin, you can be saved from yourself, and you can be saved from the judgment of God. This whole message can be summed up in three words: God saves sinners. God saves sinners. So how can you be saved from yourself, from this world, from the judgment of God that is looming over you? The answer is, I'm just going to say the ABCs. A is admit. Admit that you're a sinner and you cannot save yourself. Admit that you need God's help from outside. B, believe. Believe that Jesus is God's perfect son, came for you, died on the cross to forgive your sins and that he is for you and see come, come to Jesus, ask him to forgive you and change you forever stop trusting in yourself your own efforts your own goodness, it's all hollow and empty and come to Jesus Christ, ask him to forgive you and he will send you the Holy Spirit to change you and make you a new person it's described as being born again ABC. Admit, believe, and come. Ultimately, it's the only way to be rescued from this wicked world. But thank God, he is gracious, and he gives his grace to everyone who comes to him in faith. Let's pray.